Hey, Heritage Church, welcome to week four of our Bold Crossing series, where we spent the last three weeks looking at a few defining moments for the people of God in the Old Testament. Crossroad moments, we're calling them Bold Crossing moments. In fact, at this point, we followed them out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, to the first opportunity to step into the Promised Land, which they fail at, they balk at that. We followed them through the 40 years of wandering, back around to the opportunity to cross the Jordan into the Promised Land, and they do so successfully. And we've even followed them up to and through their first victory at the Battle of Jericho. And all along that journey, we've come to realize a principle we see that the nature of our relationship with God is revealed in how we handle bold crossing moments. In fact, that's your first fill-in for tonight. If you're using your sermon notes guide, I encourage you to do that, follow along, and take notes. The reason I ask you to do that is I want you to take what we talk about on a weekly basis, go back to your quiet time with God, and let Him talk to you about what He wants you to do out of it. This time is good, but we need more than that, more than these 30-some minutes to get deep with God and to be all that He wants us to be. So I encourage you to take notes as we go through this journey. Now, the Israelites are coming off a great defining moment. It's an incredible victory. And they're supposed to go on to fight and win many battles. But before they can do that, something huge happens. It's so significant, it creates a national crisis. It's a shocking tragedy. And it's critical for us to understand why. Because the reason can apply to us today. And you may be surprised to understand what that reason was. We saw in the beginning video we just saw a moment ago, that one matters. The power of one. One person can make a difference. Whether that's Ruby Bridges, who walked to school, that all-white school with marshals around her, or Mahatma Gandhi, or Mother Teresa, or that unknown man who stood in front of the tanks in Tiananmen Square. Each of those are examples of the power of one. How one person can make a difference. Ultimately, one matters. Now, one person can help or one person can hurt. What we decide to do in life impacts more than just us. So how we function and how we handle bold crossing moments really matters. And if we don't understand that, we can ultimately end up living a life of consequence rather than a life of purpose. And as the people of God, we're called to that life of purpose. So let's go back for a minute to the journey of the Israelites and unpack where we're at. So I invite you, if you have a Bible, grab your Bible and turn with me to Joshua 7. For some of you, you're going to scroll and click to Joshua 7 on your device. That's all cool. But let's go to Joshua 7 because this victory at Jericho is still really fresh in the hearts and minds of the people of the nation of God. The Israelites would eventually, as I said, go on to decisively win many battles in the land as they sought to conquer the promised land. In fact, they would win every battle except one. In all the conquest of the promised land, they will only lose once. And the reason they lost is important for us to know and understand. So, after Jericho, The next city in line in this journey is a city called Ai, simply spelled A-I. Ai is a Canaanite royal city. And Joshua does what every good military leader would do before attacking Ai. He sends out a reconnaissance. He sends out a group to check it out. Now this group goes and they return and they give a report. And, And their report went something like this. This is really no big deal. We don't need to send the whole army. Just send about two, two or three thousand of the soldiers and we'll be fine. Now, Joshua decides to send the 3,000. But instead of some easy victory, they are soundly defeated, beaten, 
driven back. They run for their lives. 36 warriors die. Now, from this incident, fear grips the people. They are paralyzed by fear. Scripture tells us their courage melted away. And as a direct result of this, Joshua and the elders tear their clothes, they throw dust on their head, and they fall down in front of the ark of the Lord. And they're basically saying, Lord, why did you bring us in here if you're just going to let people kill us? We would have been better off staying on the other side of the Jordan. Where are you? I thought you told us to come in here. Now this is, let's just pause for a moment in that story and understand what's happening. This is, this is newsworthy. This is news breaking. It's like, wait a second. God said, come into the promised land. God said, hey, what? You'll be prosperous and successful. But now they lost? How does that happen? I mean, isn't, didn't God just say before they stepped into this whole thing, he said, you know, be strong and courageous. You'll be prosperous. Be strong and courageous. You'll be prosperous and successful. How do you go from prosperous and successful to defeated and humiliated so fast? Well, I think for the answer to really make sense, for us to have the answer, we need to back up one chapter in Joshua to Joshua chapter 6 to get at least a part of the answer of what's happening here. See, it's where we looked last week. We saw that Joshua was relaying the instructions that God had given him for how, to, how the people would defeat Jericho. And he said, destroy everything except Rahab and her family uh, and the things set apart for God and don't take anything. They were some pretty clear instructions. In fact, Joshua 6, 18, he says, Do not take any of the things set apart for destruction, or you yourselves will be completely destroyed, and you will bring trouble on the, on the camp of Israel. Now, those are very clear instructions. And we already know that the Lord said, Look, as long as you don't go left or right, as long as you're careful to obey everything fully that I've commanded you, then you will be prosperous and successful. But just to be sure... Joshua lists some further specifics, and he says, look, the silver, the gold, the bronze, and the iron that you find, it is all sacred to God and needs to be brought into his treasury. So there were very clear instructions. So what happened? One mattered. One mattered. Look, go back with me. After the loss, the Joshua... Tears his clothes, the elders tear their clothes, they throw dust on the head, they get before the God, and they say, like, where are you? What happened? Where are you? And God responds. So Joshua 7, starting with verse 10, look what the Lord says to Joshua. He says, get up. Why are you lying on your face like this? Israel has sinned and broken my covenant. They have stolen some of the things that I commanded must be set apart for me. And they have not only stolen them, but have lied about it and hidden the things among their own belongings. That is why the Israelites are running from their enemies in defeat. For now Israel itself has been set apart for destruction. I will not remain with you any longer unless you destroy the things among you that were set apart for destruction. Verse 13, get up, command the people to purify themselves in preparation for tomorrow. And then he goes on to simply say this. He says, hidden among you, O Israel, are things set apart for the Lord. You will never defeat your enemies until you remove these things from among you. This is not good. This is bad news. It is an awful situation. But God is good and he gives some instructions for how they can rectify this. He says, look, tomorrow, bring every tribe in front of you, Joshua, and I'll tell you which tribe is guilty. Then out of that tribe, bring every clan in front of you, and I'll tell you which clan is guilty. Then out of that clan, bring every family in front of you, and I will tell you which family is guilty. 
And out of that family, bring every person in front of you, and I tell you which one it is. And so they do that. And that process of tribe to clan to family to person leads to a man named Achan. See, Achan, in the victory of Jericho, had decided to take a robe, 200 silver coins, and a gold bar. And he buried them in his tent. One matters. As a result, 36 men died. The nation suffered. And the reputation of God's people was marred as they started into the promised land. Because one man, in one tent, made one decision that led to a great tragedy. Achan, his family, and that stuff eventually is all destroyed as part of the reconciliation and the redemption of God's people in this. Now, in my Bible, the heading for this chapter says, I defeats the Israelites. I think a better title would be Israelites defeat the Israelites. See, simply because one matters. The actions of one can influence the whole. The loss that I was caused by one, one man. The sin of one affected the nation. It's what I call sin in the camp. And one individual's personal agenda affected the whole. Now, we really don't know if nobody else knew about those items in the tent. But I find it hard to believe that Achan's battle buddies didn't see him grab the robe, the 200 coins, and the gold bar and shove them in his tunic. It's possible. I also struggle to think that nobody in Achan's family wanted to know why the floor was dug up. Now, the reality is we don't know if anybody else knew or not, but we do know that Achan did it. Achan disobeyed God. He took those things, and it was a problem. And it was a problem for everyone. Because there's a truth that we need to understand about disobedience. And it's simply this, that disobedience always costs someone something. Disobedience always costs someone something. Our disobedience comes at a cost. It will cost us. It can cost those around us, other people. It can even cost in the sense of what God's trying to do in his greater purposes. We don't get to see those things realized. There's always a cost to disobedience. In fact, the implication of disobedience isn't one for one. It isn't like disobey here and so this is the consequence. It is always at least one for two. And track with me for a second. When we disobey, that means we miss God's best. What God had intended for us to do, we now miss that. That is not there anymore. And so that's one reality we have to deal with. The second reality is now we have to deal with what we decided to do. And so now there's at least two realities. And those two realities, nine times out of ten, if not ten times out of ten, are connected to other people. And so it's not just a one-for-one one for disobedience. There is a great cost for disobedience. And it ripples into relationships and into this life and into the purposes of God. It's costly. Disobedience always costs someone something. And with Achan... It cost an entire nation. 36 men died. His family was killed. And the ripple was great. Because someone will always pay the price for disobedience. Now, that may seem harsh, but I wonder if it actually is. In fact, let's do this. I need a volunteer. Someone is willing to come up here tonight and help me in this next moment. Come on. Very good. Ma'am. Come on down here. 
Just come down the front, head over here to the steps, and come and meet me up here on the platform by the table. Thank you. For, give her a hand just for volunteering. Greetings. What's your name? Lori Wells. Lori, nice to meet you. Here's your microphone. I need you to use this while you're helping me out tonight. So you can just kind of roll up, up your mouth. Hello, so, gr greet the church for me. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Say hi to Lori, everybody. Come on over here, Lori. Okay, here's the deal. I want to offer you a drink. Okay? I want to offer you one of these drinks. Does it matter which one to you? No. No? No. Okay, before you don't care, you may be interested to know that although they look very similar, they're not. In fact, here's what you probably want to know. I filled one with a bottle of water and I filled the other one from the toilet. Uh, okay, yeah, it does matter. Which one do you want now? The one that came with a bottle of water. Okay, so which one are you going to pick? The one that came from the bottle of water. Ah. <laughs> okay, you don't know which one that is, right? No, someone must have cleaned the toilets really well. Mm. Yeah, I guess it's kind of important to know if I took it from the front or from the back as well, right? Yes. Okay. Hey, Larry, listen. What, would, would it help if, if, I picked, if I picked one for me and one for you to drink and then let you decide if we wanted to switch before actually drinking? It's kind of like, you, know, you ever see Princess Bride? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, inconceivable, right? Uh, yes. Okay. Still not really interested in taking one of these, right? Not so much. No. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be either. See, listen. Hang right a second right there for, for a minute. Hang right there. There is a deeper principle for what we're reading in Joshua 7 that we sometimes just cruise right over. And that is that there is a limit to what God can do through an impure people. There is a limit to what God can do through an impure people. Now, that's not groundbreaking information. It's not newsworthy information. It's probably stuff we agree with. Lori, you agree with me that that's true? Okay. Yeah, that's, we get that. We don't struggle with that. Where we struggle with this concept is we start to look at stuff and we start to value how much impurity it takes before it actually matters. And that's where we get ourselves in trouble. Look, Lori, here's what I want to do. I want to tell you which is which. Okay. okay. This one is from the toilet. Which one do you want to drink? That one. Good call. <laughs> Good call. Now, hang on just a second before you do that. Would you still want to do that if I did this? Oh, probably not. Just adding a drop of water changes your desires. Right. Yeah, it would change mine as well. Because I think the greater question we're really ultimately needing to ask is how much impurity does it take to matter? Thanks, Lori. Thank Thanks you. for giving. Give Lori a hand. I think the greater question that we need to be asking is how much impurity does it take to matter? The problem is I think we're looking for the wrong answer because God's answer is any, any impurity, and it matters. Just like Lori knew it mattered that one drop went in the other cup, right? Look, one of the questions, we had a, we had a couple town halls this fall, and um, one of the questions I received was what I thought would be one of the greatest threats to us as a church being all that God wants us to be. In that moment, my first response was complacency. That us as a church, nah, forgetting that we're supposed to be on mission, forgetting that we're not to be about ourselves, uh, that we become a monument and not a movement. And, and I believe that that's still true. I think that's pretty critical for being all that God wants us to be. But the more I processed through that and thought about it, the more I prayed about it, 
um, I really believe that there is, there is actually one thing that will stop us dead in our tracks faster than any limitation of resource, any obstacle, uh, any issue, and that's impurity. Impurity. See, one matters. One decision, one act of disobedience, one mistake, one drop matters. We may think that that one indiscretion, that one vice, that thing that we're just not willing to give to God is really no big deal because it's just one. But that's simply not true. It matters. You see, when, when God sets a limit, he sets a physical limit, it's always for our best. In fact, another way to say that is when God sets a specific limit, it's always for unlimited potential. When God says, hey, look, do or do not do, when he sets that limit, it's always for our unlimited potential, for great return, for our benefit. For... When God sets limits, it's to set us free. It seems weird, but it's true. He sets limits so we can thrive. He sets limits for us so we will never be limited. And the reality is that once Israel got back to fully obeying, back to being purified, then they had no trouble defeating the people at the city of Ai. It was an easy win. It's kind of a cool story. You can check it out later. The reality is, once they started to obey and once they lived in purity, then they had victory. And the deal is the same thing for us. The same can be true for us today. So at the battle of Ai, Israel learned a couple things. Israel learned that they could not take a city if they disobeyed God. Couldn't be done. They also learned that victory does not primarily rest in military strength or even wise leadership, but primarily rests in the presence of God. And they also realized that even after failure, God's favor can be restored through confession and recompense, reconciliation. Now, that's some good truth. That's good stuff. And I hope you're tracking along with the concept. But since we're probably not going to be attacking any Canaanite cities in the near future, we can't stop there. We've got to go a little bit deeper to understand how we now live out of this. And I think it may simply start by understanding that disobedience costs us more than we think. Disobedience costs us more than we think. You could switch that out with impurity costs us more than we think. Both are true. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, if you're flipping through there, clicking down to it. In a few brief sentences, Jesus gives some very profound life-changing truth. It's simple yet deep. He sets it up with a very simple statement. Verse 15 of, ver- of chapter 14, he says, If you love me, keep my commands. Now, that's, that's simple enough, right? I mean, it's proof that we love him, we'll obey him. We'll keep his commands. It, it's kind of like a cause and effect, you could say. But, but he takes it a step further. If you look down in verse 21, look what it says. 14 verse 21, However, for whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by the, my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Now that right there is worth the price of admission. And let me show you why. In fact, let me draw it. When Jesus spoke, he said that when we, those who, who love him will do what? Obey. 
That those who love him will obey him. Will obey and follow his commands. So there's a connection here between love and obedience. And that's, that's okay. We get that. I understand that concept and we can play along with that. But the problem is this connection is sporadic. It's hit and miss for us unless we understand some of the bigger realities surrounding the concept. You see, we look at the whole of Scripture. We see that God reveals himself. He does it through creation. He does it through his word. He does it through special revelation. But what God does in pursuit of us is he shows us parts of who he is. Just like little snippets and enough. And when he does that, he allows us in that moment to know who he is. And when we know who he is, we understand that, that he is love himself. That all of all that he's ever done and, and the nature of who he is, that leads us to be able to love. If we know him, we will love him. Flat out. If you don't know him, you don't love him. But as soon as you get an idea of who he is, inherently out of that will be love. Now, there is a connection between love and obedience, but we struggle here because there's a reality. Um, you know, Scripture tells us we love because he first loved us. And, and so when we love, there are some realities. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that love protects, always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And there is a reality that when we love, that we will trust. That's true in human relationships. That's true in our relationship with God. When we love him, we will trust him. And the cool thing out of that is, when we trust him, we will obey him. Tracking me? If we know him, we will love him. If we love him, we will trust him. If we trust him, we obey him. And the beauty of this whole stinking thing, if we love him, then he will show himself to us. And now we know him more. And now we love him more. And then we trust him more. And then we obey him more. Then he shows himself to us even more. And we know him more. And we love him more. And trust him more. And we obey him more. This cycle is the key to understanding how to live and thrive in your relationship with God. To know him is to love him. To love him is to trust him. To trust him is to obey him. And when we obey him, he shows himself to us. Look, verse 21 again. Latter part of it. He says, the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. I too will love them and show myself to them. See, in fact, the re- to really know God, to, to see him, requires purity in our obedience. Purity is essential. In our heart, we know impurity isn't cool. We know that. But we can struggle in this cycle because of how we handle this. Jesus goes on to say in verse 23 and 24, he says, all who love me will do what I say. Anyone who does not love me will not obey me. Did Achan love God? No. Now you say, well, maybe he was, he was a Jew. Of course he, no. He didn't obey him. So he did not love him as he should. Did Joshua love God? Yes. Because he obeyed his commands. Do you and I love God? It's seen in whether or not we obey him or not. Look, God said, I'm your God. Consecrate yourself to me. He says, be holy because I am holy. He calls us to a standard of purity that sometimes we can struggle with. But it's because purity matters. It's an offering. It's an issue of heart. Maintaining purity is not sacrifice. Maintaining purity is a form of obedience. And it's one that leads to opportunity. All too often, I think we look at purity as, as sacrifice. It's some, it's some mournful, solemn compromise instead of joyful obedience. We look at it and go, man, I have to give this thing up. We look at it as we have to forfeit something. I'm not allowed to do X fill in the blank. As opposed to understanding that it positions us for the greatest things that God wants for us. 
It's not sacrifice, it's obedience. And I don't know for sure, but I think Achan saw purity and obedience as sacrifice. It's something he had to do. and didn't see it as gain. And that's small and that's sad to hold that perspective. Because it's not true. Maintaining purity is about obedience, not sacrifice. It's about obedience, not sacrifice. And that obedience leads to opportunity. In fact, it was Jesus himself. He's, he's, he's in the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. He says this. It's crazy cool. He says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in what? For they will see who? This is incredible truth, my friends. This is crazy cool. We get to see God. We get to see the King of kings and the Lord of lords. When we obey. See, the problem is, we go over to this cycle. If we get to the point we choose, we don't obey. And we allow sin in our life. We allow sexual impurity. We allow greed. We allow evil desires. We allow anything in here that causes us to disobey. Well, now this cycle breaks. And instead of knowing, loving, trusting, and obeying, and knowing, loving, trusting, and obeying, we get to obey and it breaks away. And then we feel like, where's God? We feel disconnected. He's not hearing me. He's not responding to my prayers. He's distant. What's going on? And what the deal is, he wants to say to us, like he said to Joshua, it isn't me, it's you. You moved. You disobeyed. The people have sinned, Joshua. It's not me. Get up off your face. When we don't obey, the cycle breaks. When we don't obey, things happen in our life that feel pretty bad. And then we start to lose trust in God because bad things are happening in our life. And when we don't trust God, and we truly don't really love Him, and we don't love him, it's because we don't really know who he is. And the whole thing collapses in reverse. Obedience and purity are not a drag. They are avenues to the incredible. Purity leads to God's best. When we choose it through his son Jesus, we see God. Yet there's a limit to what God can do through an impure people. You know, it's because of God's great love for us that we don't have to stay stuck in sin in a lesser life. Our impurity can become pure. Our sin can be washed away. Check out this quick illustration about this principle. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Jesus Christ the Righteous One is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. God placed on Him the sin of us all. So that He could justify the sins of the whole world. That's pretty cool. It's iodine if you want to know how that worked. <laughs> but it pretty brilliantly captures the reality that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's, it's awesome. 
It's why we can have hope. Man, man our, our disobedience, our impurity costs someone something. Someone has to pay the debt of our sin. And our sin costs Jesus his life so that we may have life. And when we submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, he purifies us, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness, and he makes us whole. I think, I, I think the question I want to ask each of us is simply, where is God limited in your life? Where is God limited in your life? You know, it, is it an area of impurity? It's an area of disobedience. What are you doing that is limiting God, limiting what he wants to do in your life? What are you not doing that's limiting God in your life? It's keeping you from seeing God. Perhaps like Achan, you're trading your purity for something of lesser value. And it's costing you and others. Or maybe you're tempted to do something that is just momentary pleasure that has no long-term reality, but it's still tempting. Where is God limited by disobedience or impurity in your life? I mean, th this is really a floor of the tent question. It's, it's what's buried in the bottom of your tent. What do you have buried down in there that, you know what, doesn't really seem like a big deal at all? It's that thing that you say, it really isn't hurting anybody else. Uh, the thing you say, well, it doesn't, doesn't matter much at all beyond. I mean, who cares? It, it's just something I'm doing. You know, what's buried in the bottom of your tent? Whatever that is, until you remove it, you will not experience full victory in this life. You'll, you'll struggle until you remove it through confession, until you ask Jesus to remove it. And if you're having trouble figuring out how to get rid of that thing in the bottom of your tent, you took it, it's there, that habit, that addiction, that relationship, whatever it is. You know what? The church family's here to help you. We don't stone people. <laughs> We're under a new covenant. Jesus has a whole nother process for how we handle the sin in our life. And, and our church family's here to help us journey through this. Ultimately, Jesus is the one who makes things pure. He's the one who sets the captives free. You cannot work your way to purity. You can only receive it through what Jesus does because he died and rose again for you and I. What's that thing bottom in the bottom, buried in the bottom of your tent? You know, I mean, life is full of regrets. We, we have all made mistakes in the journey of life, things we wish we could take back. Life is full of regrets, but I guarantee this thing. We will never, you will, never regret obeying God. You'll never regret obeying God. The implications of it are huge. It matters well beyond. Disobedience always costs someone something. The good news is that through Jesus Christ, we can be made whole. We can be made pure. And if you're spiritually unresolved, and you're still wrestling with who God is and who, how your relationship with Jesus looks, whether or not he's your Lord or not, whether he's only Savior or whether all that, you're just unresolved in that arena. I want you to know that right now, before you leave, you can have a conversation that digs out the stuff from the bottom of your tent and sets you on a new course. One where you're purified and cleansed, made whole, made new. A simple conversation with him. Whether you've done that before and have somehow ended up in a place where stuff's buried in your tent, you can still have that conversation and find yourself in a new place before you leave. You know, a lot has changed because of Jesus. We don't, I said we don't stone people. Uh, we no longer need priests to talk to God for us. We no longer need to sacrifice animals for forgiveness. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb. He has paid that price once and for all. 
And God works very directly through individuals, through Jesus. But he still responds to the actions of nations and he still responds to the actions of people groups. And so for us tonight, the so what, now what is really the, the reality of a call to purity. Without purity, God is not able to work in and through us as he intends. Without obedience, he's not able to accomplish greater things. There is a limit to what God can do through an impure people. On the flip side, as we saw earlier in the series, A.W. Tozer said there is no limit to what God can do through us if we are yielded and purified people. So what we do matters, and how we respond in defining moments matters beyond you and I. So here's the plan. In Second Chronicles, the Lord says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. What I want to do as we close our time is I want to spend 60 seconds in conversation with God. Personal conversation, 60 seconds of silence. One minute where you can have a conversation with God. And if you know what that needs to look like to move into obedience and purity in a new way, great. If you don't know what that looks like, I want to encourage you, and even if you do know what it looks like, I want to encourage you to consider praying Psalm 51. In your sermon notes guide underneath the notes section, the first 12 verses of Psalm 51. That's a great starting point to being a person who starts to live in full obedience and in purity. And maybe in this next 60 seconds, you pray that prayer. You pray that psalm as a prayer and begin to have a new season of life. Now, when you do this, I I want to encourage you. You can stand, you can kneel, you can bow. You can just drop low in your seat, whatever position is best for you. The key is to silently pray and to talk to God for about 60 seconds. After that time is gone, I'll pray and I'll close our time together and we'll step back into worship. But for the next 60 seconds, I invite you to have a conversation with God right where you're at about the things we've been talking about and about the truths that we see out of Joshua 7. There is a limit to what God can do through an impure people. And what this is tonight for us, this is a bold crossing moment. And how we choose to respond in it matters. So let's go. 60 seconds, conversation with God, and then I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Almighty, Elohim Adonai El Shaddai, Jehovah, holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty, the one who was and is and is to come. And in these moments right now, Father, we come before you as your people in confession, in adoration, in thanksgiving, and with requests. Father, thank you for being holy. Forgive us, Father, for we have failed to obey, where we failed to step in purity. 
Thank you for the blood of Jesus. Father, I pray that you would find us to be a people as we step into this next season, as we step into the bold crossings in this week, that we would be a people who live fully obedient, committed to your purity in our lives, and we wouldn't settle for less. And we would understand that what we do in our own decisions and actions, that as one, one matters. And may we do it in a way that brings you honor and glory. I love you. Thank you for Jesus again. We pray these things in his name. And all God's people said, amen.